Hello and good afternoon. Welcome to the Pauga Center podcast. My name is Arthur Asadurian, and it is October the 27th, 1 p.m. or 101 p.m. here on the West Coast. Uh, welcome. Uh, we have an exciting guest. Now, I don't want to take any more of our time because it is limited. I know last week we went for two and a half hours with our guest. This week we're not going to go for that long. So uh, without taking any more of our time, I want to bring in and welcome uh, our guest for today, Dr. Elizabeth Jackson Withorn. Do you, has that like officially been, been changed? Uh, Yeah. So I'm kind of using Jackson for more kind of professional purposes, mm -hmm. but then other things or personal things I'll use, I'll use with Orn. So that's sort of how, how I do that. So I'm happy to, to use both or, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you prefer. um, It was, it was very interesting because (laughs) it was very interesting because you have some of your stuff is Liz Jackson. And then when you like Google Liz Jackson, there's two dominant Liz Jacksons that pop up once you and another one is uh, uh, another lady and so I had to actually I was was looking through I was on Amazon and I was like okay she's written a book I know that and so I wanted to put that in the description box which it's in the description box if anybody wants to buy applied ethics Um, and so well let me just run through a a quick uh, introduction or your CV of sorts Uh, you have a you have a BS in philosophy from Kansas State University and then a master's and a PhD from the University of Notre Dame in philosophy. Both of them. You are philosophy through and through. Um, that That is a That's unique right. uh, sort of experience. I know guys <laughs> that are like Bible college kind of stuff all throughout, but it's just. Yeah. So how was yeah, that? How, what was that beginning. like? <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, it was good. I mean, it's funny. People ask me, like, what made you want to study philosophy or become a philosophy major? But I was actually one of those people that changed my major a lot throughout college. So, you know, some people maybe like knew at the very beginning, they always wanted to do one thing that was not me. I like was, so what did I do? Political science, math, educate, like I did all these different majors and I was really torn and I wasn't sure. And then I was like, you know what, I don't really know what philosophy is but I might just try a philosophy class and just see kind of how I like it or whatever. Um, And it's funny because like literally like just a few weeks into the class, I was like, I have found my jam. I have found my people. This is amazing. Like, and it wasn't even, it was actually moral or no social political philosophy. Mm. So it wasn't even like what I'm specializing in or anything like that, but I just loved it. And then I just ate up all the philosophy that I could. And, um, you know, I actually did think about um, seminary as a possibility after I finished I was like, I'm a philosophy major, that's done. But, you know, kind of thinking about after that, I thought about seminary and then I realized um, seminary is like expensive. You have to pay for it. And then if I can get into like a philosophy PhD program, um, those are actually funded. So you not only are get your tuition covered, but you get like a small stipend. It's nothing crazy. It's usually like $20,000 or something like that. Yeah. But I was like, that's kind of interesting. And then I also knew, you know, I just really enjoyed philosophy. Um, and so Notre Dame was actually a great fit because they do a lot of philosophy of religion. And um, it was, you know, in a way, kind of my dream school. So it was very exciting when oh, I got that's cool. when I got admitted there. So so I usually so ask people to give yeah. us a little bit of uh, wisdom as they go through their, uh, their education, because it, it is a struggle. A lot of people don't realize that being in academics is, is just hard. Uh, not just yeah. in the aspect of studying, reading and being disciplined, especially when you have to write a dissertation. A lot of people will do their courses and never finish a dissertation. 
because uh, their you know discipline is is extremely important. So, what's some wisdom you can give uh, for some of the viewers that might be considering going into academia and then pursuing a career in that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, there's a lot of things I could say here. Um, and one thing I, I will say kind of just on this decision is I firmly believe you can self-teach and, and, and learn a lot, even just through YouTube and reading and all of that stuff on the one hand. But on the other hand, um, it's not the same as getting formal education and philosophy and really, you know, especially interacting with um, other grad students that are very, very smart. A lot of people, when they're doing their bachelor's degree, they're sort of, you know, probably the people that go to grad school are often among the top of the class, or at least in the field that they're interested in. And then you come and then everyone's like you, you know, but it's like you can learn so much from these people, um, these other students, but then also like the professors and just having them read your work and critique you or you give a presentation and then, you know, get feedback or have to deal with really hard questions. Uh, these kinds of things you're just not you're not exposed to in the same way if you're just sort of reading and studying on your own. So I I do think while I know people that know so much about philosophy and haven't had formal education. I think there's a lot of value to, to formal education. Um, like in terms of trying to give like advice or something, I mean, there's a lot I could say. Um, I think for me, I learned sort of through my time in grad school, um, both that at least in philosophy, you often actually do have quite a bit of time in grad school, but you have to be self-disciplined and kind mm. of manage it yourself. And I think the biggest thing that helped me was setting kind of parameters around when I would work and then actually working during that time and not working <laughs> during other times. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't always work during the full nine to five period, but often choosing, you know, even if it's like 10 to three or something, choosing a time within that, that I'm like, that's when I'm going to get my work done. And then not working on in the evenings and not working on the weekends. I feel like a lot of grad students will like kind of mess around, sleep in, maybe start working mid to late afternoon. So they joke like most people work nine to five, grad students work five to nine. <laughs> um, and then they'll just, you know, they'll work weekends or kind of halfway work weekends, halfway be on social media. And I do all that stuff too. I'm not saying I'm above all that or anything, but it really helped me when I could kind of structure my time and even do time blocking with a calendar where I'll say like, nice. for this hour, I'm going to work on this paper. For this hour, I'm going to read this. For this hour, I'm going to, you know, whatever. And just try to, Try to get even a few things done each day, even if you're just working for like two to four hours. Like I don't think you necessarily have yeah. to be working like a full eight hour day. So that helped me a lot when I could kind of structure my days um, and at least have a few big things to get done, even if I wasn't, you know, putting in like an eight hour day Monday through Friday. Nice. Nice. Thank you for that. You know, it was uh, when when I started my MA in philosophy, um, I had no philosophy background. I'd taken one class. Mm. Uh, that was like an introduction to, uh, you know, just philosophy. But then I had classmates that were, you know, had all the background, you know, multiple mm. bachelor's degrees and stuff like that. And it was a bit frustrating because they, they knew all the lingo and stuff like that. And they, and they brought that in. One of the cool things was actually I realized that my interaction with my peers was so beneficial to me um, in, mm. um, in, in, the formal setting of education, right? In, in, especially when you're going, when you're doing philosophy um, and studying philosophy is a bit different because you get to do philosophy in the classroom. If it's done well, you get to do it. You know, I remember one of the first classes I took was an ethics class and um, I made some kind of a comment. Uh, and then there was a guy in the back of the classroom who was like towards the end of his um, degree. And he'd already been accepted for a PhD program who just like straight up called me out 
And I was just not <laughs> used to that. He was like, hey, you said that, and can you defend it, and this and that. And I was like, whoa, this wow. is seriously, we're doing philosophy. He wasn't mean yeah. about it, but yeah. it was great because it that first experience actually taught me how to process through stuff before I said it, mm. before I spoke up. And it was just, it was good because we got to interact with each other and learn from each other and r uh, really uh, use community well. Mm. Now, I was with a bunch of Christians, which also helped quite a bit because uh, for the most part, everyone was very nice. Oh, good, <laughs> the, 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 good. The competition yeah. wasn't really there. <laughs> Nobody was trying to kind of get ahead of each other. Everybody was working together. So that was really encouraging. So cool. You yeah. deal with my favorite branch of philosophy now when i started uh, my education in philosophy i thought i was gonna love metaphysics the most ethics second and epistemology last uh, and what ended up happening is that i love epistemology the most and then metaphysics and then ethics uh now nice. you've written a book on applied <laughs> ethics so but you, you deal with epistemology and so we have yeah. to deal with rationality and how to think um I always say about 70% of doing philosophy is definitions and having proper definitions. So let's start there. How would we define rationality? We use this term quite a bit, but how would you define it? Yeah, I think that's a really, a really good question. First of all, I want to say I love that epistemology is now your favorite. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I am also biased towards epistemology, but I think that's cool. Um, but yeah, in terms of rationality, I think this is this is actually a really great place to start. And actually, it's not a question I get as much as you would think. So I'm really glad you brought it up. Um, so I will say one thing that's really important to note is that most epistemologists and most philosophers think that there are different kinds of rationality. So there's not just rationality period, but there's different types of rationality. And since we're talking about epistemology here, um, I think the kind of rationality that we're probably interested in is what's known as epistemic rationality. And so what is epistemic rationality? Well, it's usually known as um, rationality that's concerned with getting at the truth and avoiding error. So when we're thinking about the goals of believing, having true beliefs and avoiding false beliefs, um, that's kind of what epistemic rationality is concerned with. And there's tons of debates here, like what's the best way to do that? Is it always to follow your evidence? Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about some of these kind of questions that come up with respect to that. But, um, you know, some examples of epistemically rational beliefs I think could be helpful. So, you know, a common one is a belief being based on good evidence. Uh, you know, a beliefs being formed as a result of a reliable process. So um, a reliable process would be like, you know, looking at a, a large size object in good daylight, a not reliable process would be like looking at a faraway object that's moving very quickly at night or something, you know, um, and, and the, in the former, you can much more clearly perceive what the object is than in the latter. Um, so those are kind of examples of beliefs that would be epistemically rational. Ones that wouldn't be would be like beliefs that are based on wishful thinking. So believing something just because you want it to be true and for no other reason, or beliefs based on, you know, like emotional attachment or beliefs that totally go against, you know, what the evidence seems to support that kind of thing. So some far-fetched um, uh, um, conspiracy theories would fall into line. Um, yeah. Side, side yeah. question, I guess. Um, why do people get so attached to their theories of that sort? Like when, when, you know, you can be clear-minded and look at something and say, there's seriously no evidence for this. Um, mm. But the individual that you're speaking with is so committed 
to whatever it is that they're committed to. Uh, I mean, you mentioned emotions as being one of them, but it could be some possible reasons. Because the reason I ask is plenty of atheists, as a matter of fact, accuse theists or Christians of having this sort of a belief. Yeah, totally. No, definitely. I mean, I think I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff here. And like the whole question of actually conspiracy theories in general, that's actually one that epistemologists have been really interested in. Um, but yeah, I think... Um, you know, why people get into conspiracy theories, sort of what causes all of that. I'm sure there's a lot of different mm -hmm. things that cause that. But I do think, um, you know, a lot of it is like the people around you, who you choose to talk to, whether you interact with people that disagree with you or just, you know, only stay within what's known as sometimes they call it an echo chamber, which is mm -hmm. people just repeating the same views over and over again. And you never really talk to the people that disagree with you. And one thing I actually encourage people in general, I mean, a lot of conspiracy theories, <laughs> are, are you know maybe more about politics or something else um but in but in other fields as well like ethics and religion and any of these really controversial topics is make sure you're interacting with some people that disagree with you mm. make sure you're not only following you know on twitter those that have the same perspective or the same viewpoint as you and i really encourage this with my students as well like you shouldn't assume that um even if you think you're right and you probably do because that's your view you can't just say like, we're the only group that's rational and there's nothing else I could ever learn from, from mm. the other group or they're just all irrational automatically. I mean, sure, I'm sure like yeah, people are irrational. It's not like I'm saying everyone's rational, but I think a lot of times it's like, if you take abortion, for example, it's like easy to say the people with my view, whether that's pro-life or pro-choice, are rational and sensitive to the evidence. And the people with the other view, they're all irrational and, you know, just ignoring evidence or whatever. And like, I'm like, actually, no, I think in a lot of cases, both views could be rational. That doesn't mean they're both right. One's right and one's wrong, um, okay. but they could both be rational. So, so I think okay. that's really important. So that's interesting because yeah. you're, you, you made, you distinguish between rational and, and the correctness of the view or the rightness of the view. Uh, mm -hmm. In that, uh, are are we defining ra being rational there as something that can have some evidence for it, is logically consistent, you know, uh, the, the conclusion follows the premises or something like that? Yeah, good. I mean, actually, so now this is kind of coming back to our original question. So, um, so, yeah, I think one way, like, you can think about rationality as like people could set different bars for rationality. And so people might set a really high bar and make it really, really hard to be rational. Um, and other people might set a really low bar so that like mm -hmm. everyone is always rational. And I think we should probably set it kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, but I do think, and so there are gonna be people like maybe, I don't know, not to call anyone out, but like flat earthers, like maybe most of them are not rational, you know, um, right? So, but, 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 you know, there's this interesting question, like if these two people can disagree, does that sever kind of this thing that I've been talking about earlier, which is that epistemic rationality is supposed mm -hmm. to help us get to the truth? And I think the answer there is that, well, it does help us get to the truth, but sometimes the evidence is really complicated and difficult to assess. And I think sometimes there's multiple equally good ways to interpret the evidence and ways to understand the evidence. And so part of this is just sort of a reminder of our fallibility. I definitely think two people can disagree and both be rational. And I think that's just because um, the evidence can be complicated. And even if you're following the evidence really, really well, you might not always come to the same conclusion as someone else. And I think a lot of these controversial issues and the fact that there's really smart people on both sides defending these, the fact that for some of these philosophers have been arguing about them for like decades, if not millennia, um, I think does show that two disagreeing sides can both be epistemically rational. Okay. okay. So how does, how does epistemology, I mean, you meant, touched on this, but how does epistemology 
um, or how can it uh, help us in this endeavor? Yeah, it's, it's, it's good. So I think epistemology can really kind of help us clarify our concepts. And we've actually already been doing some epistemology already. Um, but basically what epistemology is, um, I usually define it as the study of really two things, the study of knowledge and also rational or justified belief. They're very related things, but um, but I think both of these components are important. So, you know, some of the big questions we would look at when we're doing epistemology is, so what what is knowledge? That's maybe like in some ways the most fundamental question. And a lot of people think knowledge is actually justified, true belief, and then maybe plus some other stuff. <laughs> um, so things get a little bit complicated here, but note that having justified belief is actually part of knowing. So if you have a belief that's true, but it's based on wishful thinking or something, a lot of people would think that would actually prohibit you from knowing. So you need your belief to be rational and justified in order to know. And so that's kind of where the second question or this question of what is rational or justified belief sort of ties in here, um, is that part of knowledge is having a rational or a justified belief. And um, I think, you know, even where you're just thinking about the question, like, what should I believe or what should I not believe? Sort of having a theory of rationality and having an understanding of what it means for a belief to be rational can, I think, really, really help us with that question. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll just briefly say um, on this question, what makes a belief rational or justified? There are really two main views um, and they're, they're known as internalists and then externalists. So internalists think that what's um, rational or justified for you is the is a matter of something that you can kind of internally access. And often it's a matter of sort of following your evidence is the most common um, internalist view. It's sometimes known as evidentialism. Mm -hmm. Then there's externalists. So externalists have the view <laughs> that a rational or justified belief is actually a matter of something that's external to you. So it might be a matter of whether the process that you used is reliable or whether your your mind is functioning properly. And actually, um, Alvin Plantinga, who's a very famous Christian philosopher and epistemologist, was, was a pretty well-known externalist who argued that we actually have this um, part of our minds that he called the sensus divinitatis or the sense of the divine. And that was a kind of responsible for helping us reliably form beliefs about God. On the other hand, though, I think you could be very well be an evidentialist and say, yeah, but look, there is um, there is good evidence for theism or for Christianity. And one thing that I think a lot of people miss that aren't maybe immersed in epistemology is that evidence isn't just like a philosophical argument or some people might think like it's like, oh, it has to be this physical like thing in the world, like it's like a fingerprint on a gun or something. But evidence is actually this very abundant thing. Um, so, you know, your memories are evidence, your perceptions are evidence, uh, even when th things seem tr true to you, that can be evidence. And so even if you think evidence is required for theistic belief to be rational, I think, you know, given how abundant evidence is, there's a pretty good story about um, how for at least a lot of theists, uh, theistic belief could be rational. So Cool. So just um, uh, you touched on uh, internalism and externalism. Uh, mm -hmm. Do we have Christians uh, that are internalists as well as externalists? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I don't think there's sort of a settled view among Christians about which view is correct. And actually, I think this is actually a, a strength, which is that I think you can actually show that Christian belief could be rational on either view. 
on the view where you have to have access to um, what's justifying you or on the view where, you know, that's something external to you. So, um, so yeah, I don't think there's one view that Christians have to yeah. take, we, we uh, but I think both views there. support Christianity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not like the Bible is like, uh, you know, James 357 and the nature of epistemic justification is internal. Like, no, 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 that's Correct. not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it, you know, this yeah. kind of, you can look at this in the, in the sense of maybe even metaphysics where you get Christians who are Platonists and you get Christians mm-hmm. who, who aren't. It's it's not this. It, it's an interpretation you can say of the facts that are out there and doing our best to to come to these to these conclusions. So we're we're talking yep. about whether it is rational um, uh, for one to hold religious claims or religious beliefs. Now you you use this word belief, right? You said that, you know you one believes something. And that gets used in, in a number of ways in our culture. Sometimes the word belief is just used as wishful thinking, like you were saying. Um, and then some, sometimes it is not. I mean, the way you define knowledge, right, justified true belief, um, is not just wishful thinking. I mean, the mm-hmm. idea there is that you have evidence for it. And um, uh, it's, it's important. So here's, here's a claim. I believe in God. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, that's, uh, you can say, a simple statement, but a complex idea. Um, now is this a knowledge claim when somebody says, I believe in God or I don't believe in God, do we consider that a knowledge claim? Yeah, I would say no. I think knowledge and belief are different. So what is belief? Well, belief is saying, um, I take this thing to be the case. I represent this, the world to be this way. We could take a more mundane example. Like I believe it's raining. What I'm Mm -hmm. saying is. Um, in my picture of the world, it's raining. That's how I represent the world. Right. But it's not, I think people can actually make beliefs, the word belief, like more charged than they need to be. But I don't think when we're making claims about belief, um, we're not automatically making claims about what's rational or irrational. We're not, you know, automatically making claims. I mean, when I say I believe that something's true, I guess I'm making a claim about what's true. But when I say someone else believes something, we can believe things that are false. So belief and truth come apart. So the way, the way, one way to think about it is here's all the things we, we believe, this big circle. And then within that, those that are justified, those that are true, um, and then maybe those that meet some other conditions that get complicated here. Those are the things we know. So belief is much broader. Beliefs can be rational. Beliefs can be irrational. Beliefs can be true. Beliefs can be false. And then within that circle, there's the circle of things we know. And those are the things that are justified and true um, and maybe meet some other conditions also. So knowledge okay. is more restricted than belief. Got it. Um, so yeah. are, are there any religious claims uh, that cannot be rationally supported? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. Um, and so I think what my my view is, like, by religious claim, I think you, you mean like a religious statement or, or some, something that Correct, someone might yeah. believe that's of religious nature. Um, I think what we actually should avoid doing is treating all um, religious claims or religious beliefs in the exact same way. Mm-hmm. I actually don't think we should treat them all the same. So I think in general, beliefs can be rational and beliefs can be irrational. Um, you might bring up faith. That's another thing I'm interested in and have thought about some. Um, I think faith can be rational and faith can be irrational. Correct. And I think even specifically religious beliefs, some can be rational and some can be irrational. Um, and so, you know, I think to say religious belief is always rational, no matter what, no matter what the religion, 
uh, no matter what the person's evidence is, no matter what the person's been exposed to. Uh, I just think, no, that that's going too far in one direction. But then to go on the other hand and say religious belief is never rational um, and no religious person could ever have a rational belief in God or a belief that Christianity is true or belief that their religion is true, that's also going too far. And so I think that the correct position is in the middle. I think religious belief and religious faith is actually is often rational. But to say it always is no matter what the circumstance or no matter what the belief, um, I just I think that that, that can't be right. <laughs> um, okay. Um, yeah. So... Uh, would you say Christians uh, ought to have, or at least at the, at the very least strive to have, uh, beliefs that are rational? Yeah, absolutely. No, definitely. And I think I will say, too, like, I don't want the view that I have in epistemology to have the consequence that most Christians are irrational or that um, most Christians even have to be able to, like, spout out arguments for God's existence in order to rationally believe in God. I just don't think that's the case. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's this whole tradition, also going back to kind of Planiga, called Reformed Epistemology. And it's actually this pretty basic claim, although it gets wrapped up in all these more complicated debates, but it's just this claim that it can be rational to believe in God, even without being able to give like a sophisticated philosophical argument for God's existence. And I think, I think that is, I think that's very reasonable. And I, I think that's Seems definitely true. true. So, so when you look at kind of like all the religious people or all of the Christians, I, I want to say like a lot of them are rational, especially in, you know, their basic beliefs about God, Jesus, the Bible, like that kind of thing. When we get into more um, nitty gritty theological debates, things might get more complicated here. But I think when we kind of just say like they're, they're you know, they're basically so God and Christianity, I think for most of those, those would be rational and they don't need to be able to spout out these complicated philosophical arguments. You know, think about your sweet grandma who's gone to church her whole life and every night kneels down and says a prayer for you. Like, do we want to say she's irrational because she doesn't know about the cosmological argument? Like, that's just that's just sad. <laughs> um, so so, yeah, I think this comes back to what we were talking about before. Where do we set that bar for rationality? And I think this is one reason why we don't want to set it too too high you don't have to get be able to give an argument for every belief that you have in order for that belief to be rational that would just be too high of a bar correct very well yeah. put thank you um mm -hmm. now you've done some work on and i'm just i have i gotta be honest i haven't done reading i know you've done this work and i'm very interested in it because i tend to be oh, cool. one of the more skeptical ones when it comes to this specific <laughs> argument uh, but I saw it. I, I was like, oh, man, this is very interesting. So um, there, there's something that is, is in philosophy and in theological circles. Um, and anybody that's taken a philosophy 101 class, I'm very sure, has been exposed to this, regardless of the setting. Uh, this sort of an argument called Pascal's Wager. Mm. Um, so first and foremost, tell us what Pascal's Wager is, and then we'll talk about how you're sort of reformulating uh, that and, and maybe taken in a, in a certain, maybe better direction. So what is Pascal's yeah. wager? I mean, where did it come from? What's the idea behind it? Yeah, absolutely. So the way I like to often explain it, it sort of will contrast it with other arguments that are also theistic arguments. And some of your listeners are probably familiar. So, you know, the fine tuning argument or the cosmological argument or the ontological argument, these arguments are um, they're giving evidence that God exists. And their uh, their conclusion is just simply that God exists. Right. Mm -hmm. So 
one big misconception, and I think it's really important to note, that is actually not the conclusion that Pascal's wager gives. And Pascal's wager actually isn't even about giving evidence that God exists. So Pascal's wager, the conclusion of Pascal's wager is, you know, there's different ways of putting this exactly, but it's something like you should believe in God or you should commit to God. And so it's not giving evidence that God exists, but what it's saying is that um, given sort of maybe actually some of these things about rationality we've been talking about, although this is more about practical rationality than epistemic rationality, um, but given that sort of the best thing to do looking at the cost benefit analysis um, is to believe in God or commit to God. And you know, I'll maybe explain the sort of most basic reasoning behind this, but then um, note that like a lot of philosophers and actually even arguably Pascal himself, um, this wasn't the exact reasoning they gave. It's like more complicated or tweaked in various ways. But here's the most basic sort of version of the wager. And it says, OK, look, um, either God exists or God doesn't exist. And either you believe in or commit to God or you don't believe in or commit to God. And like, let's just think about sort of what the outcome would be on each of those. You can kind of have like a four by four uh, matrix. So if you believe in God or commit to God and God exists, things look very good for you, um, whether that's going to heaven or even just the, the good of having a, a relationship with this all good, all loving, creative, powerful being. I mean, that's pretty cool. So committing or believing in God, even God exists, things look really good, maybe even infinitely good. Okay. Um, if God exists and you don't commit to God, you know, theists and, and Christians and philosophers debate about exactly what happens there, but you miss out on the good of a relationship with God. Some people, you know, you could arguably say, some some people would say you, you could go to hell or maybe you cease to exist at death. Um, but at the very least, you're missing out on something on something big and it's less good than if God exists and you commit to or believe in God. Um, okay, so that's kind of what the possibilities if God exists. If God doesn't exist, what do we say about that? Well, whether you believe in God or not, it's very unlikely there's any kind of afterlife. And it seems like, you know, you could say, well, if you don't believe in God and God doesn't exist, there's another true belief you have. So, you know, we can kind of weigh these different costs and benefits. But then some people say, well, there's still a lot of benefits of being religious, even if God doesn't exist. You get this great community and um, religious people are happier and healthier and less likely to get divorced. You know, so there's a lot of things we can weigh here. But those are going to sort of pale in comparison to the goodness of having a relationship with God, having this commitment to God if God exists, which some people argue is actually even infinitely good. Um, mm. And so the idea is like, look, look at this cost benefit, sort of the best way to kind of um, hedge your bets or sort of proceed in light of th these values is unless you have literally your confidence that God exists is literally zero. You're saying there's no, it's impossible for God to exist. If you think there's any possibility that God exists, then you should wager on God by either believing in God or making a commitment to God or something like that. Um, so I will say, and, and you know, we can go into some of these if you want. There's a lot of objections to this. It's not um, like this super straightforward thing that's just going to convince everyone. But I do think um, this is why it's important to realize that um, most philosophers and even Pascal himself want to make it more complicated than this and, and think this needs some tweaking or some, um, you know, to kind of consider some more factors when we're making this argument. So I will say most versions defended today and even the version given by Pascal himself aren't exactly this version. I just like to give this version so you can kind of get the basic thing out on the table and then we can talk about objections and then ways you might kind of tweak the wager or make it more complicated. Correct. It, uh, because it seems like the wager only works 
that version of it at least um when you're dealing with an atheist or a non-theist and an atheist generally speaking uh, it gets mm-hmm. a bit more complicated when you're say dealing with a christian and a muslim mm-hmm. because, yes absolutely uh, because it does it no longer becomes about you know no belief and then nothing happening and then practically happening yep. but you could be in the wrong camp and so this naturally complicates the matter so What's, yeah. what's the work you've done in this area? How have you kind of tweaked it and changed it? Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll just say, first of all, when you read the Ponce, when you read Pascal himself, Pascal actually deals with this kind of worry. And what the way Pascal does it is people really hone in and focus on the wager and then ignore like all the stuff that was written before that. Mm-hmm. But Pascal actually gives arguments for Christianity. And what Pascal, I think, takes himself to be doing is saying, look, Christianity is way more likely way more probable than all these other religions. So once you kind of establish that, he thought, look, okay, now that I've sort of established Christianity is the most likely religion to be true, um, well, why should I pick Christianity or should I pick atheism? And then the wager kind of comes in, you know? And so I think Pascal thinks he's actually kind of dealt with this objection previously, but not through this pragmatic argument, through these epistemic, more traditional arguments where you're giving evidence for Christianity. So I think that's sort of the way Pascal deals with it. Um, the way that I've dealt with it in some of my work, I mean, I think there's different, yeah, there's different ways you can respond to this, but uh, maybe a way that contrasts with the way that Pascal did it is I actually don't make the wager Christianity specific. And, and you know, it can be, but I think you got to do what Pascal does and give arguments for Christianity to make that work. And I'm more focused on the pragmatic stuff. And so what I say is, well, look, yeah, there's Christians, there's Muslims, there's all these different views. Let's incorporate all of these different religions into the wager itself. So given this way of doing it, if you're not relying on arguments for Christianity, you're actually not going to get as strong of a conclusion. You're not going to get this conclusion that, you know, Christianity just wins every time, no matter what, no matter how confident you are in it. But the main conclusion that my version of the wager says is that you should commit to, believe in, or just wager on the religion that you think is most likely to be true. And you might think, well, that's boring because you already think it's most likely to be true. Well, no, it's actually still very interesting because it means that living your life as an atheist or even as an agnostic isn't rational. You need to look at these religions that are making these these claims about infinities and about um, what could or couldn't happen in the afterlife, kind of weigh those against each other and then go for the one that you think um, is most likely to be true. And so I think that's actually a pretty a pretty strong result. And then like I like I mentioned, you could take that and then combine it with an argument that says, you know, Christianity is most likely to be true. Or, you know, you can even insert other religions there too. And if you give those arguments for Christianity, then you can get kind of a Christian wager going. So that's my version of the wager, um, which is you could see as step one of an argument for Christianity, or you could just see as kind of a general argument um, that you should you should be religious and take take religion very seriously. It's like a backdoor entrance. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a way, in a way, but I kind of like it. I mean, I kind of think it's it's kind of creative and fun. It's like a little different than some of the more maybe traditional ways ways of getting in. Um, and I'll say one more thing too. Um, when you look at like traditional arguments that just conclude like God exists or something, that's still obviously a very significant conclusion, very controversial. But the wager is in a way actually even more significant. And part of me 
wonders if this is why people get so upset when they hear about Pascal's wager sometimes, mm. not mostly non non-believers, but it's telling you that you should do something. It's not just saying God exists, it's saying you should commit to God. You should commit your life to God. You should do everything you can to believe in God. You should do it. And in a way it's like even in a way it's even stronger because if God exists, then we kind of go from there to say, okay, what should I do? And you have to kind of think about that and argue from that. The wager itself is telling you that you got to do something. And, and, and in a way it's like this actually very, very strong conclusion, even though if in some ways it, it feels weaker. So I think that's interesting. Too. Yeah. There's a, there's a practical pragmatic aspect of it. That's uh, that, that's really cool because especially as Christians and especially as people, you know, deal in apologetics, we don't we, we don't think that God's like really concerned about your you know agreement on his existence or disagreement on his existence uh, what God mm-hmm. wants is for us to give our lives to him and follow after him in in yeah. Jesus and so um, that that's partly why the the wager has the the weight that it it, it does um, cool so you got this back way entrance uh, I, I, you know it's very interesting to me because I, I'll, uh, practically, um, I've dealt with quite a bit of people, uh, Iranians specifically, mm. um, who have had this experience uh, with Islam. And also, I have friends who've dealt with Turks in this, uh, they say the same exact thing. This kind of version of Islam that they've experienced and then left it and become atheists. Mm-hmm. where they would have previously never converted to Christianity from Islam, they become atheists and then gone from atheism to Christianity. Very interesting, yeah. Um, and I suppose that might be because there are certain things that they are closed off to epistemically uh, when they are Muslims, that when they become atheists, given a certain time span, they become more open to mm. that. Do you have any comments on that, on how we can break that down and understand it? Maybe that would be a, a route for people to go through or something similar of that sort. And then, because I, I see it tied in with like some, some of these conversations that happen with like de, uh, uh, deconverting and stuff like that, deconstructing. Yeah, I think this is interesting. I mean, I think there's kind of different ways of viewing kind of what's going on in some of these cases. So one way of viewing it is like, uh, you know, Christianity and Islam, it's almost like, uh, being married to two different people or something. (laughs) Um, so, you know, you're married, you're married to one person. Um, and then it's a lot harder for you, you know, even psychologically, I mean, you can talk about the ethics of divorce. That's not really the point here. It's just that I think it could be harder psychologically to just jump into a marriage with someone else, you know? Um, whereas if you are married to someone and then for whatever reason, you know, they pass away or you're not married anymore, you get divorced and then you're kind of single for a while, you might kind of find yourself in a situation where it's psychologically much easier than to go and marry someone else rather than just jumping from one marriage to another. I don't know if that's like a good diagnosis of what's going on or not. Um, and, and there's even questions about whether that's like the best way of viewing these various religions, but at least in terms of maybe a possible kind of like psychological explanation of why they go through atheism first, um, at least for some people, you know, that might be, that might be part of the explanation. I, I'm not hundred percent sure. I don't know. What do you think? So how much, well, I, I I've come to a very similar uh, conclusion uh, because 
we, we, when we think about rationality and we think about epistemology and reasons and evidences, um, it is not very often where we think about kind of our emotions and the psychology behind dealing with these things and difficulties we go through. And that's not necessarily always a negative thing. It could be a negative thing, but I, I would say it's a, mm-hmm. and oftentimes it's a, it's a, it's a great thing. So, yeah. um, in, in what ways are, uh, psychology and rationality mm-hmm. or even the, the, the epist- kind of epistemology as a discipline, are they connected? Because we're not just machines. I mean, very clearly we're not machines, yeah. right? I mean, we, I mean, machines get their thinking patterns from us, I would say. Uh, but um, yeah. there's, there's things that happen with us when we're dealing with an evidence, an argument that a machine doesn't go through. Totally. I think there's a lot of really interesting connections between epistemology and psychology. Um, and I'm actually really personally interested in psychology. I haven't done as much formal work on it, but actually kind of this is like funny timing because um, I just got a grant with another philosopher um, named Mike Rhoda. when we're both, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be personally learning more psychology. And then also we have some money to train other people in psychology as well. And so we haven't done it yet. So don't ask me yet uh, what all our conclusions are, what we're going to do, but it's actually really related to a lot of the stuff we're talking about this interview where um, religious belief, religious commitment, how, what makes those rational, and then like looking at those from a psychological perspective. So I'm really, really interested in that. And I think one thing just that I think is really relevant is just looking at belief itself. There's so many different questions about what it means to believe, what the nature of belief is, rational and irrational beliefs. And I actually think some in some of these epistemologists could be actually paying more attention to psychologists. So exactly what you said, like we don't just, oh, there's a water bottle. Ah, oh, I believe there's a water bottle. Da, 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 walk through my day. Like that, like that's a very like simple, easy case of just perceiving something and believing it. But a lot of cases, our beliefs are a lot more complicated than that. Like you might be, you know, in denial about whether your wife is cheating on you. You might be emotionally attached to the idea of getting a degree you're not cut out for. You might be um, deluded about something. You might be, you know, ignoring all the evidence except for the evidence that the people in your immediate community are giving you, you know, so there's all these different factors and emotions and um, social factors and um, things that we were brought up with, but just are kind of holding on to, even though we don't have good evidence for them that affect our beliefs. And it's not just this simple, like, I perceive this cup or I see that it's self-evident that one plus one equals two. Like, no, beliefs are way more complicated than that. Um, And I think sometimes epistemologists fail to appreciate this and actually even will define belief in a way that makes it too rational. And it's like, can't we believe irrationally sometimes? Like, aren't like, it's almost like what you were saying about us being robots. Like, we're not just these belief forming robots that are just like, cup table belief you know like it's it's a lot more complicated than that and and i don't think this is a bad thing either like i think in some ways this is what makes us interesting people and um i think we should strive to to be rational in our believing but i also think there's a lot of space and it's really important to note that we shouldn't just define belief in a way that means that we couldn't be irrational in believing and also note that a lot of things affect our beliefs not just these like pure and unadulterated uh, pieces of evidence that that enter our mind and then aren't, aren't filtered in any way or anything like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah, I, I tend to think people who uh, are, 
emotionless towards the evidence are pretty irrational as a matter of fact because i think it's irrational to have yeah, certain like emotional that. reactions towards certain things um totally. that, that makes complete sense i mean if you find that salvation is in jesus and you believe that and you have all the evidence for that your emotional reaction ought to be a positive one right like it yeah, yeah, just yeah. Be like i'm not feeling anything like so totally it, it, I, we, I we shouldn't give that up yeah I think, I mean, I, I think there's this misconception that like emotions are just this totally truth irrelevant thing and like emotions never help us find the truth and just aren't, you know, it's like, are you going to be logical or are you going to be emotional? And I, I, I totally agree. I just don't think that's the right way to think about it. I think we have emotions for a reason and they're a very good thing. And actually, I think studying too much philosophy uh, in a way that is pushing emotions away can be really bad. Like your example is great. I mean, another thing is like philosophers will just give these like awful horrible like thought experiments like you're in a trolley and you're about to go like run over five people and they're just like hmm should you put and it's like shouldn't we kind of like think about like how awful this is like this is a pretty messed up situation and we need to like appreciate like people's emotional responses to that not just like this like cold calculating i mean i don't know so it's not like emotions should rule everything and like emotions are all that matters no but i think like we have emotions for a reason and we shouldn't like throw out the baby with the bathwater. i think emotions can be very valuable and helpful um to point us towards the truth okay great uh you've written on these you've written plenty of articles uh the right um <laughs> yeah i haven't written as much about emotions specifically but i actually i find them so fascinating i would love to yeah to do more work on them in the future. But, but, um, but, uh, but I, I, I was generally asking about epistemology yeah, so yeah, because yeah. I would like, I would like to, um, put, if they're publicly accessible, uh, to put some of those links in sure. the description box for, for folks to kind of interact. Your you you also have a YouTube channel. Yeah, I do. Uh, I can uh, do. So, uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's really cool when you get professional philosophers who are also engaging people in the social media uh, world because yeah you tend to have these really really <laughs> smart folks that are just like not savvy <laughs> with technology oh, and stuff yeah, and then yeah, all they're yeah. doing is writing books so again that's in the description box if you want to check out liz's channel please go and subscribe and interact she's, she's got really really cool uh stuff on her channel so again uh that's oh, basically that. uh, there's a question that's um that's come in and i'll qualify it says do you do you it says, do both of you agree with the Google definition of Christianity? Should we as believers Ooh. seek to change it? Now, I asked what the Google definition of Christianity is, and it says, the religion based on the person and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth or its beliefs and practices. It's not too bad. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> it, it, it I mean, seems, it could be more yeah. descriptive for sure, but I like that it's centered on Jesus. Yeah, um, it's it's just general yeah. because I I would say yeah. in my immediate my my theology kind of my heretic hunter cap comes yeah, into yeah, yeah. Play here. Good. and I'm like <laughs> well that's gonna like include Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and oh, all sorts of good. cults yeah, because yeah, yeah. they're gonna claim to be followers of Jesus, um, and I, I would like it to be a bit more qualified because um, mm -hmm. I I even distinguish between what it means to be saved and what it means to be a Christian so. Mm, um, for, yeah. for me, being a Christian means that you hold certain um, very primary foundational beliefs of what we would consider Christianity in general. Like the Trinity would be an essential part of mm -hmm. someone being a Christian. So if anybody denies the Trinity, I no longer consider them to be Christians. 
Now that's denying it knowingly, right? Like there's plenty of people that, again, this is the epistemology stuff coming there. There's yeah, plenty yeah. of people in our churches, if we were to ask them to articulate the Trinity, then they would have a hard time articulating the Trinity. Totally. Um, either they can't articulate themselves well, or they don't know it as well, but they might believe it. Yes. Yeah. Right. And and maybe you have a couple of comments on, on that, like someone believing there is a Trinity, but can't articulate it themselves. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think this kind of thing happens all the time. And this actually, again, I keep coming back to this, but like um, the bar, we're, we're, what we're setting for people, and maybe we were talking about the bar for rationality, but there also might be a bar for like understanding or having a concept or kind of knowing something on a general level or something. And like, let's say you go up, you go up to a kid and you're like, uh, where's your dad? And he's like, that's my dad's like little kid, you know? And you're like, well, how do you know that's your dad? Give me an argument for it. Like prove it to me, you know? And it's like, it's like, okay, yeah, the kid isn't really going to have much to say to you. He's just going to be like, no, I just know that's my dad. But he knows it's his dad. Like, I don't think we should deny the child knowledge simply because he can't be like, premise one, if, you know, whatever, you know, <laughs> the definition of father is X, Y, Z. This yeah. person meets that definition, you know. So, so yeah, I think, um, but I think too, like, we have the concept, in other examples, we have the concept of knowledge, even though knowledge is really difficult for a lot of people to define. And actually, knowledge is really difficult for those who study epistemology professionally to define. But we use the word all the time. We have the concept. We, we have a good sense of these are cases where people know and these are cases where people don't know. And so I think, you know, either saying someone, someone, you know, knows or has believes or has a concept of the trinity um you know those kinds of things like they don't have to be able to give arguments for it and they might not even be able to give you like a good definition or articulation of it at the same time i think they can they can absolutely count as um having a concept of or believing that god is a trinity so those are just maybe some examples to i think kind of support what you're saying okay so uh, when we do apologetics okay well we got about 10 minutes left um so let's talk because apologetics generally deals with actually giving arguments for god's existence mm -hmm. um and when we're dealing with apologetics how much of this do we really want to push this kind of rational aspect of it um yeah. because then you get a pushback from a lot of people saying well, look, I had this experience, you know, I have friends who were drug addicts and um, who just didn't know anything else to do with their life. And they prayed and said, God, if you're real, help me. Um, I, I need to overcome this. And then they were no longer addicted to the drug that they were addicted to, like literally mm. through a prayer. And they're like, well, God exists. <laughs> you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. They, they don't want to give any arguments. They're like, here's what happened in my life. Like how rational the way we're speaking about this. Um, and uh, could we consider that this individual is someone who legitimately has beliefs properly in the way that you're supposed to have them uh, without us going after yeah. them and saying, come on, add some more stuff to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so this like this kind of example is exactly why epistemology is so important, right? If we're not thinking about epistemology and all we're thinking about is what are the arguments for and against God's existence? And we're not asking questions about, well, what does it mean to rationally believe in God? What does it mean to know that God exists? What role exactly are these arguments playing in those questions? Then I think it's hard for us to, to distinguish between the person who's studied these arguments their whole life um, and then the person who comes to believe in God because they were um, they had some religious experience or they were cured from some addiction or some illness or, you know, whatever it is. And so my view, and I kind of mentioned this already, is like you don't need 
those arguments aren't strictly necessary um, at all to be rational, to believe in God. And I don't even know that you need those arguments to know that God exists. Um, that said, there could still, there is still value to having those arguments in your back pocket. Um, and I think for two reasons. I mean, one, I think you might be in a place where you know, uh, rationally believe that God exists, but you might still have some doubts about it. You might still have questions. And I think um, having these arguments can help sort of strengthen the faith of people and kind of show like there is really, there is evidence for this. There's good evidence for this. There's good philosophical evidence in particular for this. So I think that's one reason. But I also think another reason is that when you're talking to people that aren't theists, or aren't Christians and have a bunch of questions or want to know, like, why should I believe in God? I mean, I actually think telling your personal story um, and saying, here's kind of what God did in my life is, is a great response to that. But I think some people have questions that are a, a little more intellectual. They, they kind of want to know what are some maybe concrete or maybe more like quote unquote objective pieces of evidence, like stories are great. And I, I think that's super good. I don't think we should abandon that. But I think there's a value to kind of having these like intellectual concerns being met. Um, and whether that's on the one hand, giving positive arguments for Christianity, or on the other hand, giving responses to objections that people might have, like, why does God allow so much evil in the world? Or why does God seem hidden or something? So mm -hmm. even if um, to know that God exists or to rationally believe that God exists, we don't need these arguments. I think they still have a role to play both in helping Christians with doubts and also helping people that have like intellectual questions or doubts about theism or about Christianity. Okay. So personal testimonies are an excellent way of going about, uh, according to you, they'd be a great way of going about this. Um, yeah, yeah, they are. I'm just saying that's, um, they have a role to play and they're very important, but also the arguments have a role to play too. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it does. It absolutely does. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. It, it, it also goes from like what you believe yourself, uh, the, yeah. the amount of evidence one might need. Um, and what evidence someone else might need because the person has yeah. changed then we have different criteria you could say of what's working so your testimony totally. might be great enough for someone who's known you their entire life and has seen your life change and that mm -hmm. might be good enough for them to to come to know jesus because they have evidence of your life changing as opposed to someone who yeah. doesn't know you might not even really trust that your life has changed very much and then they might yeah. need some, some external evidence for that and related to this, too, I think one thing that I've heard some Christians say that I, I just don't agree with is that um, people never have purely intellectual questions or doubts hmm. uh, or people never have purely intellectual uh, barriers to Christianity. And I just think that's not true. I mean, it might be that a lot of barriers are emotional and a lot of even barriers that seem intellectual at first end up being rooted in emotions. But I think to say that arguments never have a role to play because people don't have intellectual barriers. I just think that's not true. I've known too many people and I think myself, I've, in, I've encountered even my own intellectual barriers and doubts where learning philosophy and reading, um, you know, arguments for God's existence or reading about religious epistemology has really, really helped. Even reading and studying Pascal's Wager has helped me a lot. And so I think uh, it's overly simplistic to say that's never, you know, a, a barrier for someone. Or that's never a cause of, of of someone's doubts, and they're really doubting only because they're sinning. Like, sure, of course, people doubt all the time because of sin. I'm not saying that never happens, but I do think people have genuine questions, and it's really good to be able to answer those, you know, coming from an intellectual point of view as well. Oh, cool. 
we're coming towards the end again here and somebody's asked the question yeah. if you don't want to answer this don't we might have you back on <laughs> just to answer this question because i know it's complicated um, yeah uh but someone asked did she have a solution to the gettier problem Ooh, <laughs> yeah no this is this is tough i feel like i want to yeah, I feel like you're right. I could talk about this for like an hour. Well, maybe I will say I do have a couple of videos on my YouTube channel, which I know you, you've linked in the description, mm -hmm. talking about what is the get your problem mm -hmm. and explaining it in more detail. Basically, the problem is this. It seems like there are cases of justified true belief. So the person justified true belief, but they don't know the thing in question. So I'll give you one quick example. Um, let's say you walk into your office and every day you've walked into this office and your clock has always been working and you walk into the office, you see it says nine o'clock and you form the belief it's nine o'clock and it is actually, it happens to be nine o'clock. So the belief is true. And because your clock has been working for all the years that you've worked there, um, the belief is justified. So you have a justified true belief. But let's say there's a twist and the clock actually is stopped. So the clock is not working. But the other twist is that it actually stopped last night at 9 p.m. But it's one of those clocks that doesn't tell you yeah. a.m. or p.m. It just has the hands, you know. Um, and so, you know, you kind of got unlucky that it stopped, but then you got lucky that it actually you walked in at the exact time that it stopped at. Um, and so so it's it's a justified true belief. But a lot of people think you don't know. And part of the reason you don't know is because there's these two different kind of strokes of luck that are involved. Um, yeah, so then there's this huge puzzle, which is, okay, if knowledge isn't justified true belief, how do we sort of fill that gap? How do we go from justified true belief? What's that missing piece to get to knowledge? Um, and yeah, I don't actually have personally like one preferred solution to that. I actually think adding some kind of general anti-luck condition is actually not totally implausible when mm. saying it's justified true belief that doesn't result in luck or something. Um, you might, I mean, I think one objection to that is, well, what does it mean for it to be lucky? And, you know, how do we sort of spell that out in more detail? And you might think that just kind of pushes the problem back a little bit. But I actually think um, that's not justified true belief that doesn't have luck involved or, you know, something like that uh, isn't a terrible definition of knowledge. But when you look at the literature on this, it's been going on for a very long time. And there's a lot of people giving new definitions and then people saying that one won't work for this reason. And actually, this is part of why I think some people have moved from trying to define knowledge to actually just working on other questions like what is rational belief? What should we believe? And, and a lot of my work is actually more focused on rational belief than sort of these questions about the exact nature of knowledge. Um, so I know that's probably not totally satisfying. Um, I, you know, I'm not even totally convinced any of your problems do have a solution. And there's actually people I'll say too, very quickly, that actually think we shouldn't define knowledge at all, but we should treat knowledge as basic. So that would be called the knowledge first view. And this is like Timothy Williamson's view. Hmm, so there's a couple different ways you could go here. Um, so yeah, I guess the answer is I don't really have have a solution but i think it's an interesting problem well, and maybe some kind of anti-luck condition could, 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 yeah can we say that there's some kind of a fourth condition <laughs> in there that we can't really put our finger on it but there is a fourth condition yeah and actually some people just say knowledge is justified true ungettiered belief <laughs> and they just say ungettiered is whatever that fourth condition is i love then, it whoa. i love philosophers just think they can make stuff up yeah um, it's, well, it's, it's kind great. of like how <laughs> it's kind of like how mathematicians it's like the square root of the negative one is undefined so they just call it i and then they do it's kind of like that sort of move a little bit but because <laughs> philosophers anyway, love yeah. <laughs> making words up and and uh 
Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I learned that pretty quickly that you, when you do philosophy, you can just make stuff up. Um, not it's pretty great. Yeah, it's, <laughs> Everyone it's like, should do philosophy. You're going to make stuff up. No. Correct. It's like, we'll yeah. just add, we, we'll just add a hood to the end of something or a likeness uh, <laughs> uh, to it. And, and there we go. You know, uh, I well, I want to thank you for That's taking, awesome. taking some time and, and uh, coming on here and having this discussion. Uh, and uh, I'm very sure I think uh, we will we'll have you back on and uh, have some more discussions and some more details. So uh, appreciate well, this it. Was, yeah, this was a lot of fun. I just want to say thanks. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks to, to all the listeners as well for listening to me ramble on for an hour. But yeah, no, this you're not rambling on. Uh, you do, <laughs> it seems to me that you have some books coming out. Mm -hmm. Correct. I do. Well, yeah. So there's the one in applied ethics. So okay. that book is um, it's basically a you know, maybe you're interested in kind of these applied ethics questions like the ones we cover are abortion, um, poverty, uh, how much should we give to charity? What kind of like, how should we treat the environment? What should we say about those with disabilities? So these kinds of questions, but you're not wanting to dive into, you know, maybe these, these journal articles that are very technical. This is a, a much more accessible kind of friendly book written for someone who doesn't really have a lot of philosophy background, but is interested in these kind of applied questions. And I think you, you did link that in the description. So yes. go check that out. If that's kind of the thing you're interested in a lot of the big kind of debates that have been coming up today, actually, we cover the main arguments for and against. And I'll say too, the main, the point of the book isn't to convince you of one view on, on these things. We're not like, here's all the reasons you should uh, vote pro-life or vote poor mm -hmm. choice or anything. We're really just trying to lay out here's the arguments that philosophers have given so you can kind of be informed about the way philosophers have thought about this. So that's that book. And then the next book, it probably won't be out for a year or two, but it's actually, that one's very related to a lot of things we've been talking about today. And that book is a debate about um, rational belief and then evidentialism, sort of the role that evidence plays in rational belief. And so uh, I'm excited for that one too. Again, it's, 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 there's still, we still got to do some work on it, but I'm actually debating another philosopher in the book. And, and I think it'll be a lot of fun once that Very comes good. out. Yeah. So that's a written debate, folks. Uh, and a written debate. It, yes. It's fun to read written debates because you can go back and look at it. Yeah. And, and so that's that's enjoyable. You can I, I guess in written debates, the, the format is you can think quite a bit about what they're saying before you respond. So I I find them to they be a lot be, more beneficial. Yeah. They can be higher quality, I think, um, for that reason. So. I agree. Totally. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is 2.03, at least here on the West Coast uh, of the United States. I want to thank you guys for joining us and going through this. If you're watching the replay, you've gotten to this point. Thank you very much. Go ahead and hit that like button. If you're not subscribed, subscribe, because we try to bring interviews like this once a week, every Thursday at 1 p.m. And also Mondays and Fridays, we have a Q&A time uh, that, that I just answer people's questions about. Anything that's related to stuff that I think I know. Um, so uh, tomorrow we'll be on uh, again at, uh, at 12. So join us for that. Thank you again for being here with us. Take care. God bless you. And we will see you tomorrow.